0: Chapter 16 of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter 16 Arcadian London. Being in a humour for complete solitude and uninterrupted meditation this autumn, I have taken a lodging for six weeks in the most unfrequented part of England, in a word, in London. The retreat into which I have withdrawn myself is Bond Street. From this lonely spot I make pilgrimages into the surrounding wilderness, and traverse extensive tracts of the great desert. The first solemn feeling of isolation overcome, the first oppressive consciousness of profound retirement conquered. I enjoy that sense of freedom, and feel reviving within me that latent wildness of the original savage, which has been, on the whole, somewhat frequently noticed by travellers. My lodgings are at a Hatter's, my own Hatter's. After exhibiting no articles in his window for some weeks but seaside wide-awakes, shooting caps and a choice of rough waterproof headgear for the moors and mountains, he has put upon the heads of his family as much of the stock as they could carry and has taken them off to the isle of Thanet. His young man alone remains, and remains alone in the shop. The young man has let out the fire at which the irons are heated, and saving his strong sense of duty, I see no reason why he should take the shutters down. Happily for himself and for his country, the young man is a volunteer. Most happily for himself, for I think he would become the prey of a settled melancholy. For, to live surrounded by human hats and alienated from human heads, to fit them on, is surely a great endurance. But the young man, sustained by practicing his exercise and by constantly furbishing up his regulation plume – it is unnecessary to observe that as a hatter he is in a cock's feather core – is resigned and uncomplaining. On a Saturday, when he closes early and gets his knickerbockers on, he is even cheerful. I am gratefully particular in this reference to him, because he is my companion through many peaceful hours. My hatter has a desk up certain steps behind his counter, enclosed like the clerk's desk at church. I shut myself into this place of seclusion after breakfast and meditate. At such times I observe the young man loading an imaginary rifle with the greatest precision, and maintaining a most galling and destructive fire upon the national enemy. I thank him publicly for his companionship and his patriotism. The simple character of my life and the calm nature of the scenes by which I am surrounded occasion me to rise early. I go forth in my slippers and promenade the pavement. It is pastoral to feel the freshness of the air in the uninhabited town, and to appreciate the shepherdess character of the few milkwomen who purvey so little milk that it would be worth nobody's while to adulterate it if anybody were left to undertake the task. On the crowded seashore, the great demand for milk, combined with the strong local temptation of chalk, would betray itself in the lowered quality of the article. In Arcadian London, I derive it from the cow. The Arcadian simplicity of the metropolis altogether, and the primitive ways into which it has fallen in this autumnal golden age, make it entirely new to me. Within a few hundred yards of my retreat is the house of a friend who maintains a most sumptuous butler. I never, until yesterday, saw that butler out of superfine black broadcloth. Until yesterday, I never saw him off duty, never saw him, he is the best of butlers, with the appearance of having any mind for anything but the glory of his master and his master's friends. Yesterday morning, walking in my slippers near the house of which he is the prop and ornament, a house now a waste of shutters. I encountered that butler also in his slippers, and in a shooting suit of one color, and in a low crowned straw hat, smoking an early cigar. He felt that we had formerly met in another state of existence, and that we were translated into a new sphere. Wisely and well he passed me without recognition. Under his arm he carried the morning paper, and shortly afterwards I saw him sitting on a rail in the pleasant open landscape of Regent Street, perusing it at his ease under the ripening sun my landlord having taken his whole establishment to be salted down i am waited on by an elderly woman labouring under a chronic sniff who at the shadowy hour of half past nine o'clock of every evening gives admittance at the street door to a meagre and mouldy old man whom i have never yet seen detached from a flat pint of beer in a pewter pot the meagre and mouldy old man is her husband and the pair have a dejected consciousness that they are not justified in appearing on the surface of the earth. They come out of some hole when London empties itself, and go in again when it fills. I saw them arrive on the evening when I myself took possession, and they arrived with a flat pint of beer and their bed in a bundle. The old man is a weak old man, and appeared to me to get the bed down the kitchen stairs by tumbling down with and upon it. They make their bed in the lowest and remotest corner of the basement, and they smell of bed, and have no possession but bed, unless it be, which I rather infer from an undercurrent of flavour in them, cheese. I know their name, through the chance of having called the wife's attention at half-past nine on the second evening of our acquaintance, to the circumstance of there being someone at the house door, when she apologetically exclaimed, It's only Mr. Clem what becomes of mr clem all day or when he goes out or why is a mystery i cannot penetrate but at half past nine he never fails to turn up on the doorstep with the flat pint of beer and the pint of beer flat as it is is so much more important than himself that it always seems to my fancy as if it had found him driveling in the street and had humanely brought him home In making his way below, Mr. Clem never goes down the middle of the passage like another Christian, but shuffles against the wall as if entreating me to take notice that he is occupying as little space as possible in the house. And whenever I come upon him face to face, he backs from me in fascinated confusion. The most extraordinary circumstance I have traced in connection with this aged couple is that there is a Miss Clem, their daughter, apparently ten years older than either of them, who also has a bed and smells of it and carries it about the earth at dusk and hides it in deserted houses i came into this piece of knowledge through mrs clem's beseeching me to sanction the sheltering of miss clem under that roof for a single night between her taking care of the upper part in pall mall which the family of he's back and a house in sir james's street which the family of leaves town to morrow i gave my gracious consent having nothing that I know of to do with it, and in the shadowy hours Miss Clem became perceptible on the doorstep, wrestling with a bed in a bundle. Where she made it up for the night I cannot positively state, but, I think, in a sink. I know that with the instinct of a reptile or an insect she stowed it into herself away in deep obscurity. In the Clem family I have noticed another remarkable gift of nature, and that is a power they possess of converting everything into flu. Such broken victuals as they take by stealth appear, whatever the nature of the viands, invariably to generate flu. and even the nightly pint of beer, instead of assimilating naturally, strikes me as breaking out in that form equally on the shabby gown of Mrs. Clem and the threadbare coat of her husband. Mrs. Clem has no idea of my name. As to Mr. Clem, he has no idea of anything, and only knows me as her good gentleman. Thus, if doubtful whether I am in my room or no, Mrs. Clem taps at the door and says, "Is my good gentleman here?" or if a messenger desiring to see me were consistent with my solitude, she would show him in with, "Here is my good gentleman?" I find this to be a generic custom for I meant to have observed before now that in its Arcadian time, all my part of London is indistinctly pervaded by the Clem species. They creep about with beds and go to bed in miles of deserted houses. They hold no companionship except that sometimes after dark two of them will emerge from opposite houses and meet in the middle of the road as on neutral ground, or will peep from adjoining houses over an interposing barrier of area railings and compare a few reserved mistrustful notes respecting their good ladies or good gentlemen. This I have discovered in the course of various solitary rambles. I have taken northwards from my retirement along the awful perspectives of Wimpole Street, Harley Street, and similar frowning regions. Their effect would be scarcely distinguishable from that of the primeval forests, but for the Clem stragglers, these may be dimly observed when the heavy shadows fall, flitting to and fro, putting up the door chain, taking in the pint of beer, lowering like phantoms at the dark parlour windows, or secretly consorting underground with the dustbin and the water cistern in the burlington arcade i observe with peculiar pleasure a primitive state of manners to have superseded the baneful influences of ultra civilization nothing can surpass the innocence of the ladies shoe shops the artificial flower repositories and the headdress depots they are in strange hands at this time of year hands of unaccustomed persons who are imperfectly acquainted with the prices of the goods and contemplate them with unsophisticated delight and wonder the children of these virtuous people exchange familiarities in the arcade, and temper the asperity of the two tall beetles. Their youthful prattle blends in an unwonted manner with the harmonious shade of the scene, and the general effect is as of the voices of birds in a grove. In this happy restoration of the golden time, it has been my privilege even to see the bigger beetle's wife. She brought him his dinner in a basin, and he ate it in his armchair, and afterwards fell asleep like a satiated child. At Mr. Trufit's, the excellent hairdressers, they are learning French to beguile the time, and even the few solitaries left on guard at Mr. Atkinson's, the perfumers round the corner, generally the most inexorable gentlemen in London, and the most scornful of three-and-sixpence, condescend a little as they drowsily bide or recall their turn for chasing the ebon Neptune on the ribbed sea-sand. From Messrs. Hunt and Roskells, the jewellers, all things are absent but the precious stones, and the gold and silver and the soldierly pensioner at the door with his decorated breast i might stand night and day for a month to come in seville row with my tongue out yet not find a doctor to look at it for love nor money the dentist's instruments are rusting in their drawers and their horrible cool parlours where people pretend to read the every-day book and not to be afraid are doing penance for their grimness in white sheets the light weight of shrewd appearance, with one eye always shut up as if he were eating a sharp gooseberry in all seasons, who usually stands at the gateway of the livery stables on very little legs under a very large waistcoat, has gone to Doncaster. Of such undesigning aspect is his guileless yard now, with its gravel and scarlet beans, and a yellow brake housed under a glass roof in a corner, that I almost believe I could not be taken in there if I tried. In the places of business of the great tailors, The cheval glasses are dim and dusty for lack of being looked into. Ranges of brown paper coat and waistcoat bodies look as funereal as if they were the hatchments of the customers with whose names they are inscribed. The measuring tapes hang idle on the wall. The order-taker, left on the hopeless chance of someone looking in, yawns in the last extremity over the book of patterns as if he were trying to read that entertaining library. The hotels in Brook Street have no one in them and the staffs of servants stare disconsolately for next season out of all the windows. The very man who goes about like an erect turtle, between two boards recommendatory of the sixteen-shilling trousers, is aware of himself as a hollow mockery, and eats filberts while he leans his hinder shell against a wall. Among these tranquilizing objects it is my delight to walk and meditate. Soothed by the repose around me, I wander insensibly to considerable distances, and guide myself back by the stars. Thus I enjoy the contrast of a few still partially inhabited and busy spots, where all the lights are not fled, where all the garlands are not dead, hence all but I have not departed. Then does it appear to me that in this age three things are clamorously required of man in the miscellaneous thoroughfares of the metropolis. Firstly, that he have his boots cleaned, Secondly, that he eat a penny ice. Thirdly, that he get himself photographed. Then do I speculate. What have those seam artists been, who stand at the photographed doors in Greek caps, sample in hand, and mysteriously salute the public, the female public with a pressing tenderness, to come in and be took? What did they do with their greasy blandishments before the era of cheap photography? Of what class were their previous victims, and how victimized? And how did they get, and how did they pay for, that large collection of likenesses all purporting to have been taken inside, with the taking of none of which had that establishment any more to do than with the taking of Delhi? But these are small oases, and I am soon back again in metropolitan Arcadia. It is my impression that much of its serene and peaceful character is attributable to the absence of customary talk. How do I know but there may be subtle influences in talk to vex the souls of men who don't hear it? How do I know but that talk, five, ten, twenty miles off, may get into the air and disagree with me? If I rise from my bed vaguely troubled and wearied and sick of my life in the session of Parliament, who shall say that my... Noble friend, my right reverend friend, my right honorable friend, my honorable friend, my honorable and learned friend, or my honorable and gallant friend, may not be responsible for that effect upon my nervous system. Too much ozone in the air, I am informed and fully believe, though I have no idea what it is, would affect me in a marvelously disagreeable way. Why may not too much talk? I don't see or hear the ozone. I don't see or hear the talk. And there is so much talk, so much too much, such loud cry and such scant supply of wool, such a deal of fleecing and so little fleece. Hence in the Arcadian season I find it a delicious triumph to walk down to deserted Westminster and see the courts shut up, to walk a little further and see the two houses shut up, to stand in the abbey yard like the New Zealander of the grand English history, concerning which, unfortunate man, a whole rookery of mares' nests is generally being discovered, and gloat upon the ruins of talk. Returning to my primitive solitude, and lying down to sleep, my grateful heart expands with the consciousness that there is no adjourned debate, no ministerial explanation, nobody to give notice of intention to ask the noble lord at the head of Her Majesty's government five-and-twenty bootless questions in one, no term time with legal argument, no prius with eloquent appeal to British jury, that the air will to-morrow and to-morrow and to-morrow remain untroubled by the superabundant generating of talk. In a minor degree it is a delicious triumph to me to go into the club and see the carpets up and the bores and the other dust dispersed to the four winds. Again, New Zealand alike, I stand on the cold hearth and say in the solitude, here I watched bore a one with voice always mysteriously low and head always mysteriously drooped whispering political secrets into the ears of Adam's confiding children accursed be his memory for ever and a day. But I have all this time been coming to the point that the happy nature of my retirement is most sweetly expressed in its being the abode of love. It is, as it were, an inexpensive agapemony, nobody's speculation, everybody's profit. The one great result of the resumption of primitive habits and, convertible terms, the not having much to do, is the abounding of love. The Clem species are incapable of the softer emotions, probably in that low nomadic race, the softer emotions have all degenerated into flu. But with this exception, all the sharers of my retreat make love. I have mentioned several Row. We all know the doctor's servant. We all know what a respectable man he is, what a hard, dry man, what a firm man, what a confident man, how he lets us into the waiting room like a man who knows minutely what is the matter with us, but from whom the rack should not ring the secret. In the prosaic season he has distinctly the appearance of a man conscious of money in the savings bank, and taking his stand on his respectability with both feet. At that time it is as impossible to associate him with relaxation or any human weakness as it is to meet his eye without feeling guilty of indisposition. In the blessed Arcadian time, how changed. I have seen him in a pepper-and-salt jacket, jacket and drab trousers, with his arm around the waist of a bootmaker's housemaid, smiling an open day. I have seen him at the pump by the Albany, unsolicitedly pumping for two fair young creatures whose figures as they bent over their cans were if i may be allowed an original expression a model for the sculptor i have seen him trying the piano in the doctor's drawing-room with his forefinger and have heard him humming tunes in praise of lovely woman i have seen him seated on a fire engine and going obviously in search of excitement to a fire I saw him one moonlight evening, when the peace and purity of our Arcadian West were at their height, Polk, with the lovely daughter of a cleaner of gloves, from the doorsteps of his own residence, across several Road, round by Clifford Street and Old Burlington Street, back to Burlington Gardens. Is this the Golden Age Revived, or Iron London? The dentist's servant! Is that man no mystery to us, no type of invisible power? The tremendous individual knows, who else does, what is done with the extracted teeth. He knows what goes on in the little room where something is always being washed or filed. He knows what warm, spicy infusion is put into the comfortable tumbler from which we rinse our wounded mouth with a gap in it that feels a foot wide. He knows whether the thing we spit into is a fixture communicating with the Thames or could be cleared away for a dance. He sees the horrible parlour where there are no patients in it. And he could reveal, if he would, what becomes of the everyday book then. The conviction of my coward conscience, when I see that man in a professional light, is that he knows all the statistics of my teeth and gums, my double teeth, my single teeth, my stopped teeth, and my sound. In this Arcadian rest I am fearless of him, as of a harmless, powerless creature in a scotch cap, who adores a young lady in a voluminous crinoline, at a neighboring billiard-room, and whose passion would be uninfluenced if every one of her teeth were false. They may be, he takes them all on trust. In secluded corners of the place of my seclusion there are little shops withdrawn from public curiosity, and never two together, where servants' perquisites are bought. The cook may dispose of grease at these modest and convenient marts, the butler of bottles, the valet and lady's-maid of clothes, Most servants, indeed, of most things they may happen to lay hold of. I have been told that in sterner times loving correspondence, otherwise interdicted, may be maintained by letter through the agency of some of these useful establishments. In the Arcadian autumn no such device is necessary. Everybody loves, and openly and blamelessly loves. My landlord's young man loves the whole of one side of the way of old Bond Street, and his beloved several doors up New Bond Street besides. I never look out of window, but I see kissing of hands going on all around me. It is the morning custom to glide from shop to shop and exchange tender sentiments. It is the evening custom for couples to stand hand in hand at house doors, or roam linked in that flowery manner through the unpeopled streets. There is nothing else to do but love, and what there is to do is done. In unison with this pursuit, a chaste simplicity obtains of the domestic habits of Arcadia its few scattered people dine early, live moderately, sup socially, and sleep soundly. It is rumoured that the beadles of the arcade, from being the mortal enemies of boys, have signed with tears an address to Lord Shaftesbury and subscribed to a ragged school. No wonder, for they might turn their heavy maces into crooks and tend sheep in the arcade, to the purling of the water carts as they give the thirsty street much more to drink than they can carry. A happy golden age and a serene tranquillity. Charming picture, but it will fade. The Iron Age will return. London will come back to town. If I show my tongue then in Savile Rover half a minute, I shall be prescribed for. The doctor's man and the dentist's man will then pretend that these days of unprofessional innocence never existed. Where Mr. and Mrs. Clem and their bed will be at that time passes human knowledge. But my Hatter Hermitage will then know them no more, nor will it then know me. The desk at which I have written these meditations will retributively assist at the making out of my account, and the wheels of gorgeous carriages and the hoofs of high-stepping horses will crush the silence out of Bond Street, and will grind Arcadia away and give it to the elements in granite powder. End of chapter 16 Read by John Trevedeck